a Highline podcast. Welcome to Ravel, a roundtable show about how faith gets complex with the vast amount of information at our fingertips. For some people, this complexity has caused the unraveling of their faith, and for other people, it's been liberating. Take us, for example. I'm Stephen. I'm Josh. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of the American Christian spectrum, and as some of our beliefs migrate, we still feel like our theology is in process. Theology always has fundamentally been, and will always be, an exploratory dialogue. That alone is proof that faith raveling doesn't have to be a crisis, even if it feels like it. We don't have all the answers, so we want to use this show to model what it can look like to genuinely sort through beliefs in real time. So share a drink with us as we pull on the thread of our own pressing questions. Thanks for listening. Hello. Shalom. Welcome. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Good energy. I love it. It sounded like you said yellow, so I was just like, I was trying to rack my brain for a fun color. Oh, I did. I was about to say a color too, like fuchsia. I don't know where I started doing that. I don't know where I started using the word yellow for hello, but I don't hate it. It's effective. The tradition continues. Uh, Speaking of traditions, what are y'all drinking? I'm recording in my church because the internet is so much better here. Thank God. And so I, des- I decided to see what we had in our fridge because we have many refrigerators in our church for some bizarre reason. And someone had made their own tea, like a herbal tea, and it is bomb. I can't quite put together what the flavors are quite yet. I'm still trying to piece it all together, but it is really good. Cool. Mystery tea. I like that. Yeah. My drink is no mystery to me. This is from the Equilibrium Brewing Company, the Tower Cloud Pilsner. It's a very good Ooh. pint of Ooh. just very crisp, refreshing beer on a summer day. Chilled mug? No, I actually have it in my Billings Mustangs koozie Aww. that I just got myself. Reminds me of you every time, Emily, with this. It warms my heart, Stephen. You know, the longer I drink beer, the more I really appreciate like really good light beers. Me yes. too. It's hard to pull off. Not everyone does it. That's true. true. Um, I thought about making a beer cocktail, uh, but I realized none of the beers I have would mix well. So I did not. Future episode. But I made myself a gin cocktail with about an ounce of grapefruit juice and lemonade. And then I, I put in some lemon lavender syrup and a little bit of fresh lemon juice. And it's really good. It's very summery. Very refreshing. Call me farmhouse core but i just really love having a cocktail in a mason jar it's just mm. a great experience oh great yes yeah. i completely agree nothing so and then you summer. find that perfect spot on the rim where it doesn't feel weird for your lip to hit like the threads of the mason yes. jar yeah mm-hmm. we all have that yeah. perfect spot we know where it is oh it's it's just beautiful i yeah. i'm such a simp for it um <laughs> have we shouted out uh who bought our drinks this week i don't know if we've shouted out becca yet I don't think so. I don't think we have. Becca, thank you for buying our drinks this week. Our newest patron has joined the ranks, and we have already gotten to know her a little bit, and she's wonderful. So thank you so much for buying our drinks. Incredibly active on the Discord. Love to see it. Yes. Thank you for all your words, Becca. Her and Jeff are going back and forth like crazy on some previous episodes. 
Yeah. Talking about what Love we talked hearing about. about her kids and her family uh, I know. and her upbringing. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Completely agree. All right. I'm still thinking about Stephen's last episode about church and what do we do with it? And to be honest, my mind was still reeling after that conversation. And I feel like I had multiple conversations about it after we're both with you guys and some of my friends and Elise. And I'm realizing I have a lot more thoughts on it that we just cannot fit into an hour. But one of the Mm. things I've been thinking about for a bit now is the idea of harm mitigation. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, That got a good reaction out of you guys. (laughs) Yes. So I was listening to an episode of The Magnificast. Actually, it was the first episode I've ever listened to. And it was their episode called Reality Can Be Worse Than We Think. And they were talking about this new EPA decision. I actually don't remember much about it, but it had something to do with uh, like a SCOTUS overruling. And they were talking a little bit about eco-theology and like some different tie-ins there. To be honest, it was pretty SCOTUS heavy and I, a lot of that stuff goes over my head. But one of the things that they were kind of talking about was like the ecological view of harm mitigation and kind of coming from the standpoint of we can't completely, like we cannot completely get rid of our own impact. But what we can do is like mitigate the harm that it causes. Mm. And they were like, they were definitely talking about like thinking long term instead of like short term and all this stuff. And it got me thinking about the church because I think that a lot of people, and rightfully so, are very angry at the church, especially based off of their personal circumstances. And I, I don't think that's wrong. And I think that there are lots of people, both Christian and non, who would not be opposed if the church as an institution ceased to exist. Mm-hmm. And I, as an optimistic person in general, I don't think that that's realistic, like at least within the short term. Like there are just so, like the Christian institution is so compartmentalized and it's so broad reaching that, like, I don't think that that's a reasonable solution. Like, even if church causes a lot of harm in a lot of people's lives. So it got me thinking about, like, what could it look like? Like, kind of like with this parallel to, like climate change reduction and like ecology, what would it look like to think long term about what could reduce harm in the church? Mm. Man, Can my we- brain is whirling right now. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I got. I'm gonna give you a second to have your brain whirl. I gotta kick my cat out. He's being so obnoxious right now. <laughs> this is why I will never own a cat. Yes, they're just apathetic roommates. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. I think I have a track now of how my thoughts can string together. Amazing. Yeah. Get us started. All right. So first, I think what's important to note is the solutions, hopefully, that we come up with for reducing harm in the churches need to be long term. Like, I am so tired of these Band-Aid bogus solutions for any institution. If you're trying to reduce harm in a work environment, in a school, in, you know, any like community outreach programs, senior living centers, things like that, they can't be just these short term kind of band-aid solutions. And especially in churches, the long term is important if we want churches to survive. And I think that question poses 
a lot of thinking for people involved in churches. So not just pastors and staff, but people who are attending because they are just as much of the church, if not more of the church than the pastor or staff that's on hand. And for communities that really value churches, whether they be Protestant or not, or any denomination or even any fa- any religious institution, if any community values them, then they need to see the potential of why harm reduction in churches is important and also why harm is even happening in churches. Like you can't value an institution and see all the harm that they're causing. That to me just seems so backwards. And I think this is a great topic for us to discuss, Josh. I think it pairs really nicely with what Stephen was sharing and bringing up for his topic, you know, the last time he shared. So, oh, I'm really excited to dive into this. I really like your point about a band-aid solution and how uh, that is not effective. And I also really like your highlight about like the reasons why Christians should care about this. And I 100% agree that uh, the church if it wants to keep existing, really needs to think deeply about this and mm-hmm. like make some best practices happen. But I also think that what's really interesting to me about this question is that I, I think like posing the framework this way in terms of like harm mitigation, to me, it seems like poses it in a way that both Christians and non-Christians should absolutely care about. Like we should all be concerned mm-hmm. about decreasing the harm because mm-hmm. that's good. Absolutely. Yeah, top of mind for me is that I think any meaningful harm reduction in the long term, to Emily's point, is going to happen when people who find themselves in leadership, either present day or in the future, are ready to listen to the experiences of the people to which the harm was inflicted. And like I I think I would prefer where I am at right now is I would prefer to see harm mitigation strategies and really thinking long-term about how could we actually transform something like the church in a positive way. I think that requires centering voices of the people who have been like pushed to minorities and where the church has like actively schismed around, you know? So like, Oh yeah. The easy example is like I want to learn from and hear the experiences of and then let the harm mitigation strategies be suggested and come from people who have experienced it, say in the United Methodist Church that then mm-hmm. split over that community to United and the Global Methodist Church, right? So like I want to listen to people with a different gender identity or sexual or sexuality than myself because I don't know all the harm that's being done, like implicitly, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. like through or systemically even, right? Like I, I don't even see it happening. Like the, the reason I'm fired up right now about the way churches in the year 2022, they just absolutely must be clear about whether they're affirming or not. But I, I'm only impassioned about that because I've experienced real personal hurt because of a community essentially doing a complete 180 on their attitude toward my wife after she came out as bisexual and non-binary. And I don't think if it hadn't landed so close to home for me that I would have 
realized that this is such a problem that it is and that it causes as much harm as it does. So basically, here's the solution. Instead of churches being like geese, where they fly in a V formation and follow a single point, churches need to be more like starlings, where they're just this huge mass of birds that fly in the patterns that they do because they listen to the birds on the edges. Like they listen to those birds that are in the margins. And Hmm. I think if, if churches were like starlings in that sense, where they listen to the margins and they listen to the people who are being harmed Whoa. and the people who are hugely affected, then we wouldn't have the issues that we would as if we're flying in a pattern like a geese, wow. where there's just this one leader and you follow that leader and hope that they know what they're doing. You, <laughs> you've just had that metaphor locked and loaded, haven't you? Because that was so oh, poignant. Wow. I am. I have been sitting on it. <laughs> keeping it warm that is so good it's true though like if you see a pattern of starlings flying in the sky when they swoop around they're following the edges those around them are the ones guiding everyone and they're able to fly seamlessly and it's beautiful i like both of your examples but one of the things it brings to mind for me is i think that we also have to be careful in that because I think that if if we only do that, then I think a lot of people end up putting the onus of responsibility on the hurt people to fix things. And I think that yes, I yeah. think that like that's not the answer. But like, but I also am on the same page about like those voices just get suppressed, like and pushed out of church, and like unfortunately that's the norm, and certainly that has to be a part of the problem fixing and part of mm-hmm. the harm reduction. Right. I don't know. I feel like I've, I've never experienced this myself, uh, but I'm, I would not be surprised if I know people who have experienced this. I've, I just feel like I've heard stories of people who tried to bring up in their church, like, hey, I'm a part of this community. And like the way that we're doing these things is like harming me or harming this community I'm a part of, mm-hmm. like whatever type of minority they are. And it just it's just like so easy for people to ignore that if they don't already have that mm-hmm. that mindset that you're talking about and i i've just like heard stories of people who get placed on them this burden of like well that you fix it then yeah and like i do think community buy in is real like i do think that like it is good to be solutions oriented and not just be complaining <laughs> like that's just like my personal thought <laughs> but like i i think that the line has to be drawn somewhere to put the responsibility still on the church. I think that's where education is important. If the line is drawn where we say this group of people who we are talking about is here to educate. They are not here to have all the responsibility pushed onto them. Like really just right. enforcing mm. the idea of he they are here to explain and to show us and now we can be part of the solution. Like we can be the ones who have the resources and we put our brains together and we do the grunt work. There's no reason why it should be put back on the individual, especially because then they enter in this deadly toxic cycle of mm. where it's um, it's almost like really if you think about it, it's almost like a really distorted way of an abusive honeymoon phase where huh. the church is saying we love you and we welcome you, you're made in God's image, 
oh, you're going through this crummy time. Let's basically punch you in the face and you have to now like fix the problem yourself. But we still love you and we welcome you to church. You know what I mean? It's a really weird cycle where it just seems to never end. And so it's up to us to break that cycle and to say this person is trying to tell us what is happening, what is going on, what harm is being caused. Now the responsibility is on us. Yeah, I think because I I think you both have excellent points, Josh, like I, I wouldn't want to make it. I would want to clarify at least to say that I, I know not everyone feels called to be like on the front lines of both calling attention to the harm and then actually like working on the policy or however uh, the harm mm. mitigation goes into effect. I think, um, and even to your point, Emily, I think maybe even the, the further clarification for me is I don't think we could even expect that every member of the community that's experiencing harm or having an issue is expected to do that work of education. Like I'm remembered, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. reminded of like the, the summer of 2020 and many of the just kind of like exhausted calls from black people I follow through social media and on uh, podcasts and stuff. It's like, we are doing the work because we were already doing the work of like putting this type of education out there and like getting people to see what's happening. But that doesn't mean you have carte blanche permission to go ask any black person what it's like to be black right now. Like that's not Mm -hmm. fair. Mm -hmm. That's not, you should absolutely not do that. And for me, I think where, where I'm particularly impassioned about the way churches are treating the LGBTQ community right now is because a, my wife finds herself in that community and I don't. And B, she personally doesn't feel like she's equipped or ready to even start talking about it much. But mm-hmm. for me, having been a, a witness to the kind of hurt and harm that the church has caused her, her now, like I have really been trying to learn what appropriate allyship looks like right now and yeah. what like what what's my place in that and i've i've been having a ton of conversations with her just to say like i don't know am i overstepping my boundaries here because like i'm at the point where i'm about ready to draft an open letter to the church we used to go to and mm. like send it around to friends and family who i know who have left the church for similar reasons and anything like that and to her she's like i mean if that's something you want to do like i wouldn't do it i you know like, so where, where's the line where I am like mm-hmm. crossing toward even making her or that community uncomfortable with how hard I'm trying to push? What, what I really love about like what you're wrestling with is like, A, it reminds me so much of the prophets, but yes. I think it also begs the question of like, like what action can I meaningfully take that will actually impact towards change? Like whether it's for an individual or for a community. And I feel like that's the real, yeah. that's the real kicker. Like, we all want to see harm reduced, hopefully. <laughs> like, we sh- like I, I really hope no one in the church is, like, actually, like, hooray, harm is being done to people. Like, I think that a lot of people, like, are actually blind to it, yeah. to be fair. Right. And, like, we, I think you're right that we do need certain people to, like, call it out. And then, like, once, once it's known about, I think the real question is, like, okay, well, what now? Like, I think what's really interesting to me about thinking about harm mitigation on the mass scale right now is like all the stuff that's happening with the SBC, like they're now being investigated by the FBI, mm-hmm. which is like kind of new territory, <laughs> like for the modern church. Right. Like, whoa, what's going to happen? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially like with a denomination that like more or less prefers to be hands off, like from the top down. Mm-hmm. That I think that's going to be groundbreaking. And then just thinking about like things that have just been historical too, like whether it's the Catholic Church or American Christianity, like there's just so many cases of systemic harm gone rampant. And yeah. I'm not sure what the answer is either. Like I know it's not always as simple as, oh, just remove that person from power because they're an abuser. Like sometimes that is the answer, but then other times that doesn't actually fix something and that doesn't like right the wrongs. And yeah. I, I think it's like a hard one to think about because like, of course we all would love to see harm just like erased and like enough protections in place where people aren't subjugated as they were before. But as you were talking, Stephen, my mind went to uh, the American Disabilities Act and oh, how like, I think a lot of problems in the church get ignored because they're not as tangible. But like if we were to... I'm not saying this is the best example, <laughs> forgive me, but if we were to transport a situation like yours and Dixie's or, you know, someone else's whose whose issues are a little bit more internalized and abstract, if we were to transport or export that situation to someone in a wheelchair and that person in yeah. a wheelchair said to the church, hey, I, le- I can't get in, like, you're not letting me in. And that church was like, oh, well, you just have to build the stairs up the ramp. Yeah. Like, so all of a sudden, that's like so much more starkly, obviously wrong. But like, as soon as it's like abstract and personal and individualized, it's like really easy for other parties, I think, to like deny their responsibility. Yeah. And yeah, like it makes me wonder, like, what would what, what could a what could a massive thing look like for the church that was like functionally the same thing as the ADA, but for mm-hmm. everything else? <laughs> like, uh. I don't know. Am I thinking too big here? No, actually, Josh, like your example was tied in perfectly. What I was going to bring up was if nice. <laughs> if if churches start small with trying to notice what harm looks like, because I think you're absolutely right. When we get into the big, more abstract and internalized issues like LGBTQ and even race, you know, mm-hmm. things like that, churches see it like it's obvious they they know it's there but it's one of those that they can't quite grasp yet so it's like you got to give them bite-sized pieces to really chew on first and disabilities for sure is a big one to start with because there are so many ways that you can reduce harm easily signage accessibility door size you know pews and the space between chairs and and alleys like you know entryways and lighting um elevators or if, if escalators are needed or whatever the case may be in a church building like there are things that churches can do to implement safety and accessibility to ensure that harm is reduced in many ways and if they start there and they realize like oh we've we can do this what else can we do to reduce harm? Then they then they can start taking bigger bites and tackling other issues to mm. where they are able to hopefully totally get rid of harm, <laughs> like not even just like reduce harm, but hopefully their goal should be to totally eradicate it. Because I think when we have the idea of harm reduction, we're leaving space to say, but there's still harm there. Like to reduce something, you're not entirely getting rid of. You know what I mean? Like, so when you hear reduction, you're just reducing, 
the whole point should actually be to abolish it, like to entirely get rid of it should be the goal in mind, I would think. So harm reduction is a good start. And then churches then should say, how do we actually get rid of harm? What are the things we can do above and beyond to completely Mm. eradicate harm? Because when we leave room to say, but (laughs) that's where people fall back and they go back into these patterns that are short term and short lived. And that's not what we like. That's not what we're called to do. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, And I agree. I think a lot of these things could potentially be completely eradicated, uh, depending on what the thing is. Um, Like, I think ADA is a great example. Like something was obviously able to be put into place that affected all institutions beyond the church that Mm -hmm. required physical access to Mm -hmm. spaces. So like, like, of course we know like things are possible, right? Like on the massive scale. I think what seems really reasonable to me about like thinking of primarily reduction and mitigation is that that's often what's talked about in terms of climate change, as in it's a lot of scientists opinions that we are so far in deep that we cannot completely reverse our impact but what we can do is like lessen the harm that is is caused by the impact, mm-hmm. and and I in my mind it's like having a I'm not quite sure what the right word is for th- this. It's not just like solutions oriented approach, but it's also like a when new harm is revealed, like mm-hmm. our instinct is to mitigate it versus like try and just get rid of it completely because that's usually like a bigger task. Like, for instance, with the church, I think that a lot of people would go to, well, just get rid of the church. And then all of a sudden, the problem doesn't exist in the church anymore because the church just doesn't exist. Sure. And like, I I think in some cases, maybe that does work like on the small scale, but like on the large scale, they just go to a different church. And so I think that's what's interesting to me about thinking about mitigation over strict abolishment is that Mm -hmm. I think that it I think that has real potential to like really cause a lot of good in people's lives. And maybe mitigation is the form of eradication. Oh, sure. I think it absolutely can be. Yeah. Yeah. We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there, and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, Don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. Ravel is a founding podcast of the Heinlein Media Network. And here's a word from one of our sister shows, The Whiskey Bench. Welcome to The Whiskey Bench, where we pair cocktails with conversation. 
Whether we're diving deep into a meaty subject like the history of fascism, or why monetary policy drives inflation, or just bringing you the highlights of a crazy news week, we aim to look past the simple answers and discuss the complexity of our wild world. So pull up a chair, pour yourself a drink, and join us on the Whiskey Bench. Listen, we know every church nowadays has its own espresso bar. But that didn't stop us. We've partnered with Good Food Award winner Revel Coffee to present a custom Highline blend. This is not your church's under-trained barista's coffee. No, no, no. It's reliable, delicious, brews well with every home method, and honestly, it just smells great. This isn't your stale, burnt-to-a-crisp grocery store brand dark roast that tastes like it comes from the pits of hell. The Highline blend is properly sourced, roasted to order, and shipped out fresh. Support us by ordering a bag at highline.network shop, or tap the link in the show notes. I don't know. What, what do you think needs to be mitigated in the everyday small town church? Like, not necessarily oh, like an abusive situation. Or like a, a large church structure that you vehemently disagree with, but like what's something like in the everyday that can be bettered? Oh my gosh. <laughs> talk about I know. a big yeah. <laughs> talk about a big question. Um one of mine that I'm thinking of off the top of my head that I actually see a lot of this in coffee shops is the size of furniture. Mm, I, I uh-huh. think that we've we're starting to see a migration towards very accessible, not fat phobic furniture, like furniture that is not restricting you to a certain size, furniture that almost literally anyone can fit in and be comfortable in. And pews are awful for that. Yes, <laughs> like I love the beauty of a pew. I think like they were revolutionary for what they were at the time, but man, we got to get rid of them. <laughs> like that's just like so simple. And like a lot of churches have already done that, right? Like a lot of churches have gone to softer chairs, wider rows, and like, I think a lot of people have just made those logical decisions along the way, but I think that there's things like that all around, like just in like the design of church. Ooh, I guess. So one that I'm coming up with just looking at, I can see, you know, in my office where I'm sitting, I can like see down the hall and I can envision what the sanctuary and everything looks like. But one of the things I was thinking of was lighting and sound. Oh yeah. Because the shape of our sanctuary describing it to people who have never seen Code United Methodist Church. Basically, the 1960s was a prime era for churches in the West to look like giant teepees, where the steeple (laughs) is not just a tower with a steeple. It's like the entire roof comes to a point of a triangle, and it's huge. It's massive. Can confirm we've been there. Yes, and it's, it's huge. And so the way the sound fills that space depending on where where you are seated and what is happening, it sounds great. But for people who have a hard time hearing and how your sound quality is to begin with, whether it's music or speaking, I think hearing assistance is important, but the lighting is also crucial. We have a huge stained glass window and we have these LED lights that are on the side. But for people who may have a hard time seeing if there's a lot of shadow or if they can't make out shapes, I think it's really important to have visually clear 
either signage or things that are lit in a way that people know, okay, this is the sound booth. I know that there are pews here. There's the monitors. I think there are just ways that we can implement very easily lighting and sound equipment, hearing assistance for people who need it, including, and what I love about our sanctuary is we have what's called the cry room. And for this is for other churches, by the way, if you're listening, don't have your cry room separate from the sanctuary. If there's one thing that I've learned that causes harm, it's saying you're welcome here, but if you're going to do this, you need to be over there. And a cry room is the best example because you're telling young parents, grandparents, children of any age, you're welcome here, but if you're going to cry, which is a normal response, you need to be separate from everyone else. So Mm. we're going to have the cry room completely distant from the sanctuary. And I absolutely appall that. How would it still be a cry room then if it's not separate? So like in our church, we have that glass pane in the back of the sanctuary where there's a pew. You're in the sanctuary. You're in the back of the sanctuary, but you can still see, but we can't hear you. Like we, you can cry as loud as you want. And we know that you're still there. And we have speakers set up so they can still hear everything that's going on in the sanctuary. Oh, and they're okay. still in the sanctuary. Gotcha. I see. It's not like go down the hall to the left. There's a spot for a changing station. Then there's a TV that shows the pastor and, up there. No, exactly. It's literally take like if take just walk to the back, shut the door. You're still in the sanctuary. Yep. You're still a part of the service. And we mm. can still see you. And we can see like, oh, yep. She's breastfeeding or, you know, this baby's crying or this person just needed to get away and just wants to sit in the cry room. Like, that's just so inviting of saying, here's a simple thing that we can do to implement where people feel welcome to be part of the service. And that, to me, is harm reduction right there. Like, that Mm -hmm. is such an easy way of reducing harm to people who want to still be a part of the service. But life happens (laughs) like a crying baby, for instance. I can recall a number of times where when Thea was very little, Alex and I, we weren't quite comfortable with just handing her off to the nursery attendant and, you know, with her like breastfeeding and everything and needing a bottle at any time, it was great for Alex to say, I'm just going to go sit in the cry room because at least I can still see you preaching. Thea is still close by and we're still a part of the service, even if there's a pane of glass between us. But that still says you're invited and welcomed, not go down the hall and be banished to this room. Emily, I really like your example. Uh, and to be honest, it like in my imagination, it sparks the idea that every church should just have glass doors. Yes. Yes. And there's like a part of me that wants to say every church should have security camera systems just everywhere because mm-hmm. nothing should happen in the church that shouldn't be on camera. Exactly. And but <laughs> like not everyone's gonna agree with that obviously and like that's probably not practical for most churches and i like i can recognize that like a lot of churches are like yours that are like small and elderly and to be honest there's not as much risk for s- certain things either like in some areas but uh, what it gets me to think about is like i think what what i was trying to hit at earlier was harm mitigation is inherently preventative like we're trying to like prevent the next thing and also like mitigate what has already happened yeah and so I think that like even me like just imagining there like this church that is the <laughs> like panopticon like there's no stone unturned. I think what I'm really trying to think about is like how do we actually have a preventative mindset in a way that like discourages people from misbehaving and also like protects the innocent in our own walls. Mm-hmm. And I think a crying room is a great example. 
I think that's yeah. perfect. And I think one of the things that's important and the cry room is actually kind of a good example still is trying to for other people who are not a part of the community that necessarily needs the cry room. It's showing other people how fear is reduced. So for people who are afraid, not like boo afraid, but just afraid of the idea of having a screaming child in church (laughs) to say, look, here's a solution that can reduce that. It's it's all being taken care of. I think the idea of trying to eliminate the the fear that people may have when you bring up a solution, because there are going to be Mm. people who ask, well, what if, you know, what if the glass breaks or what if they don't want to go into the cry room or, you know, what if, what if, what if? And for me, I know I've already told people if my child is screaming and doesn't want to go in the cry room, I've already told people I'm going to hold her and preach a sermon. Like, I'm not going to turn my child away for your happiness. It's I'm going to care for my child and still do my job and you will still hear a sermon from me. Um, But here's a solution. Here's the cry room, you know, and trying to just reduce that fear of the what if, because once people get caught up in the what ifs, then they they have a hard time trying to see the potential in the solution that's being brought to the table at work this last week i watched a an anti-harassment training video that's like really standard it was like made by like an hr like payroll company kind of thing like so it wasn't even specific to us but it was like an hour-long thing that went through lots of different examples a lot of it was you know redundant and oversimplified like for sake of good definition and my mind honestly went to I don't think we've talked about this specifically, Emily, but I know that you've brought up before that like seminary just doesn't prepare you for so many things. And like <laughs> in my mm-hmm. mind, like how helpful and like harm reducing would it be for like every church to watch these once a year? Like just just like like set the standard of like, yeah, we're like a no harassment church. Yeah. Like every form. And I love it. Like tons of pastors like I think think that they've done enough by I don't take this personally because I, I don't know what you've done. Um, but I think a lot of pastors often feel like they've done enough by like coming at it from a spiritual angle, which I think can be valuable too. But like, I think sometimes you just like need the explicit like HR lady to say, no harassment. If you do get harassed or if you think you see harassment, this is what you do. Absolutely. And here's how we handle it. And it, it discourages it from even happening. And it like, it protects people so that they know what will happen when it does happen. So I will say, here's a great example of that, actually, Josh. Um, in the United Methodist Church, there's a program called Safe Gatherings. I'm sure you actually might have heard of it. I don't know. It was I have formerly, not heard of it. It sounds very COVID-related. <laughs> it was it was formerly safe sanctuaries, but it was determined by churches that for groups that meet as a church, but they're not physically in a sanctuary space, whether it's at camps or they're on mission trips or even like just in the community at a coffee shop. They were in gathering spaces and safety and harm reduction was still of the utmost importance. So they changed the name from safe sanctuaries to safe gatherings and safe Mm. gatherings is for how we use it in our church actually specifically is for those who are involved with working with children and um, those who work with vulnerable adults. So our trustees, our education people, any of our volunteers, uh, paid staff have to go through these trainings every year. and. What they do is they go through this training, they have their certificate, and it's good 
for three years. But every year there are still videos that they and trainings that they still go through to stay up to date. And we require it in our church for people to do a safe gather gatherings training. And what they have to do for it is they have to have a reference and a clergy reference. They have to go through all these questions. They have to watch the videos. There's no option to skip or to go back. Like you have to sit and do the training. And the person who actually oversees that training for our church to get people started, she sits in the room with them when they're nice. going through the training for the first time. And then for those who have done it, they can go through on their own. But for the first initial one, that person has to be in the room with the person who oversees it. And I think it's such a great program that people, all churches, organizations, religiously affiliated should use safe gatherings because they stay up to date. They wow. alter their material to be uh, inclusive of um, whether it's with sexuality or gender identity or race or age anything you can think of and the thing and even for covid they have special things for covid too which was really cool when they came out with it i love it and i think for churches who don't use it you should look into it because it really is thorough to the point and it's that very idea of hey harassment is occurring here's what we need to do and hopefully you don't ever need to implement it but if you do here's what you do and i think it's really cool and i highly recommend it safe gatherings i'm not a paid sponsor but i should be <laughs> Is this Methodist specific? Um, I don't believe it is, but I know it is widely used in the United Methodist Church. Dope. Let's just put a link to that in the show notes. I've never yes. heard of that before. That's yes, so let's cool. Do it. That's what I'm talking about. Like that should be bare minimum for staff. Absolutely. If not, like in my head, I'm like, what more good could that do if non-staff were also required and or encouraged to sit through that like once a year? Exactly. And that's why our volunteers most actually, we have more volunteers than paid staff. And the fact that we have volunteers who like come forward and say that they want to help out, we say, hey, like go through the safe gatherings training. They are more than welcome to it. And that also mm. includes first aid and CPR training that we do every two years as well. Wow. I'm impressed. I must say. Thank you. Right on. Thank you. I feel like I need a gold sticker or something. <laughs> if, if I had my own organization that like ranked churches for their uh, best practices and harm reduction, I would give you five out of five stars. I think that's fantastic. I'm sure oh there's gosh. more room for improvement, but like always, that's like the, more than most churches do, in my opinion. Yeah. So and, much you more. Know, and actually, Josh, thank you for saying like there's probably more room for improvement because that's so true. Like I see all the good things that my specific congregation is doing. And I also see the areas where we can strengthen ourselves and grow in regards to harm reduction and safety. Like, whether it's classes that we offer about LGBTQ individuals or whether it's meeting with the trustees and saying, what can we do to implement higher safety and more ADA friendly reg like regulations for our church community? Whatever the case may be, there are always areas of growth for churches. And so for churches who are listening to this, if you are, or members of churches who are listening to this, if you do, I think what's in cru like very crucial idea is to say there is always more you can do and never stop. <laughs> like just yeah, keep exactly. going and keep going and keep going because we may never get to like a perfect crisp solution, but the fact that we're going to always see areas of growth and areas that need to be improved on just shows that you are willing to care for your neighbor and to reduce harm as much as possible. 
And the fact that you're even willing to recognize harm in the first place by saying, what can we do differently is so important. Stephen, I feel like I have just been taking over. What are your what are your thoughts? Um, I struggled to think of any like specific, like to your point of like small or local thing. I really like the example of the cry room. I really love the idea of even just like paying attention to how it sounds or what it looks like and who might uh, suffer from the choices we've made. Like that's just that just speaks to that you're paying attention to even the small things. And I think you ought to. Um, but having been dislocated from church as long as I have been, literally all I can think about in terms of harm reduction right now Josh is that I I just I I think it's time that we just stop teaching hell at all. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Yeah, let's just go mm, theology. Yeah. yeah. I yes. I'm stuck on theology. I think every church starting today should just stop teaching hell because from my experience, right, my my very specific experience going through this with my wife with our old church is I feel like hell gives a license to churches, to church leadership, and to Christians at large permission to exclude. Because Mm -hmm. I think if you believe in a hell where God created it and puts the people there who didn't put their faith in him at the right time or the right place or whatever, I think what they have is a cosmic license from the God of the universe to say, well, I'm going to exclude those people too, so you have permission to do it now. Mm. And whether that be by ignorance or malevolence, right, like whether it's overt racism or implicit, that is problematic. And I think getting rid of hell for me has taught me that everything ought to be included. Everything is included in my paradigm of God and in process theology and all these uh, new ways I've learned to look at the Bible and uh, look at my relationship to the Bible and to God, to the divine to like the person of Jesus of Nazareth and also the cosmic Christ. Like all of it is about inclusion and showing that people who feel like they're not part of the team or feel like they're pushed to the edges of the club, not only should be listened to, but like deserve the seat of honor at the table, right? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. It doesn't say the first shall be completely excluded because the excluded shall be first right it's not like it's a one in one out policy what we have is everyone has always been a part of this to begin with who are we to think that we would ever be like separated into like the good place and the bad place by the end of all this and i think if the longer you seep in a theology like that that teaches you that even god as as god's self all loving as he may be will exclude people and send them to hell for making one wrong choice or two wrong choices, right? Like if God's going to do that, why can't We're just I? exist? Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. And I, it's obviously such a personal example too. Um, if someone has not listened to our episode on the afterlife and how to get there, highly recommend we talk about our yes. different views. I don't even feel to- like it's about afterlife. At this point, though. Oh, you wouldn't like, even go so far as not talking about afterlife. You would just say just hell. No, because just paying attention to biblical literacy and just learning that, like, yes, there are ways that people can interpret heaven and hell as afterlife realities. And I happen to do that. I happen to be a person who is that as a Christian universalist. Like, mm. I don't think hell exists. I think an afterlife exists that we get to call heaven and that everyone will be included. But 
there's another interpretation in the Bible that says heaven and earth are now realities happening on this earth, and it's the church's call to foster heaven and mitigate hell, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And mitigate harm. Yeah. So and oh yeah, totally. So even Mm -hmm. even if you want to take it from that interpretation, like this is a now reality here, and if I think hell exists. It, it's kind of the thing is like, if I think hell exists, then it probably does, you know? And Oh yeah. Again, I just think it kind of gives you a cosmic licensure to say God will exclude them. So I have permission to do that now too. And I don't mm. think so that's right. This is where it gets like hard for me. Cause like, I agree with you. I think that that is in my mind, probably best outcome, but I don't think most people would like get on board with doing that. So then my mind goes to this is classic Enneagram nine is coming out in me, Emily. <laughs> my mind goes to what could I get the most people to get on board with and like capture most of the bell curve? Sure. And yep. in my mind, if we're like going to go, it's not this, my solution. I recognize sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. But like for like if we're going with uh, this example of like theology being harmful too, I think that a practice that more people could get on board with is just recognizing the Christian diversity in interpretation and like being honest that some Christians believe in this, some believe in this and others believe in this. And there are different interpretations. And here on a Sunday morning, you won't hear us endorse a single one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really hard for churches to do, but I also think that like that is a, like a closer to middle harm reduction of theology strategy that more people could potentially get on board with. Yeah. Mine is pretty like rip the bandaid, go hard, go totally. fast. Yeah. I, yeah. Right. I get that. I can see where you're coming from. Like what's the stepping stone to get there? Just in Emily's case of like, if we want to address racism, maybe we should just address like what our church sounds like right now. You know, like not, not because they're necessarily related, but because it's training you to keep an eye out for mm-hmm. harm being caused to people who do not have an experience that's equivalent to yours, right? Like, this is why ableism exists, is because the assumption that everyone just enjoys, like, an able body and able senses, like me, excludes people implicitly. Yeah. So, yeah, Josh, I I like the way you're talking about that. Like, maybe we just start with the conversation of, there are different opinions about this, and this is where, right, this teaching pastor is particularly coming from, right? Like if I was a teaching pastor, I would be up there saying like, you might disagree with me, but I'm here. The church has trusted me to teach and preach with you. And I don't believe in hell, so I will never preach about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Emily, when was the last time we had an ecumenical council? Was it Nicaea? Oh. Or was, or was Trent nearer to us? I think Trent. But it was still be. Middle Ages. It's right? still Middle Ages, yes. Overdue. Yeah, I was going to say. So, yeah, I would say long overdue. Do you think that this is something <laughs> that, like, if an ecumenical council happened in the modern day, could it solve this potentially? Like, obviously, like, the churches have, like, such differing policy, and it would be so hard for, like, government overreach to, well, even just in me saying it in that phrase, <laughs> it would be, like, so hard for me, for the government to, like, like make policy that would restrict churches in certain ways, I think, especially in America. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think an ecumenical council could catalyze a change like this? Whatever the yeah, solutions yes, are. Yes. Yes, I do. And I think one, I am hopefully optimistic. <laughs> right. And I recognize that. But I will say just from looking at history and seeing 
the reason that we had Council of Nicaea and Trent and <laughs> even before those, uh, any other forms of councils that came together to discuss hot topic issues that needed to be resolved, it was people coming together and saying something needs to solve itself, like something needs to be fixed. And so for modern churches, even if we didn't entirely agree on theology or biblical interpretation, if we were to all come together and just recognize that something needs to change, we wouldn't force ourselves to say, here's a timeline. Instead, we would say, we're going to do whatever it takes and we're going to come to a solution, even if it takes us a couple of years, a decade, whatever. But even just to say we're going to put in the work, I think is important. And so I do think it, I do think it would be possible. Yes. Great. Well, let's do it. Let's start it. <laughs> what a I don't know how we call one of those together, but <laughs> Yeah, what a note of optimism. I love it. Yeah. I could get on board. Ah, uh, yeah. Sign me, me up. Too. Honestly, some shit like that going down would make me go back to church probably. Like if I was mm. guaranteed if I was like nearly guaranteed that there were good harm reduction strategies in the church that I wanted to go to, like whatever practice I was feeling at the time. I would just be like so much more likely to like want to go there, like actually want to go there. Like going back to our point on last episode about desire, like that is one of the biggest things for me that makes me not want to go to church. Like I just, I just don't want to be complicit in a system that doesn't protect people. Well, uh, we know that it's possible because there's, you know, the ecumenical council of worship. So if Mm. they've created a council of worship, they can create a council that's set for harm reduction and inclusivity. I think it's totally possible. Wait, there's a council of worship that exists? Yes. What? I didn't know that. You did? Oh, well, there you go. Wow. Well, look at that, Josh. You're learning about things that are ecumenical and that are actively working on harm mitigation. So yeah. that's kind of cool to come into the episode that is really feeling cool. like, maybe this doesn't happen. How do we make this happen? <laughs> learn that yeah. it's happening yeah no that does feel really cool especially for such a like a heavy and broad topic i think that it feels really unapproachable for a lot of people like i think that it just feels like it's too big to like make a meaningful change and it also feels really heavy especially like on some really specific mm. issues within yeah. that right um like sbc great example or like for a lot of people like to your point steven like it has become very personal and i think that also makes it very difficult to talk about in the general sense Mm. so thanks for uh, chatting with me you guys uh i do feel like i learned a couple new things here so thank you yay this was great emily how do you want to close it out i think i want to end on a high note and just really enforce the idea of the hope that can be found in harm reduction and for all of us who are wrestling with our faith or wrestling with the institutions we can do a lot of good and a lot of work to ensure that harm is reduced and people do feel invited and welcomed and want to be a part of that. So I'm just really excited to see what the future holds. And for those who are questioning and really wrestling with this topic, keep it, like keep at it because we are doing the same. And when we keep the conversation going, that's when we can see change unfold.
Stephen, I was telling Emily before, uh, like when you were getting your cat out of the place, um, that this is why I will never have a cat. That is my personal harm reduction. Highline Media Network, artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.